Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Ben Wong. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. In this week's episode, we are experimenting with something different that we have done in the past. Starting in 2020, we wanted to create a brand new introduction with brand new music to symbolize a new beginning for the new decade to come. And this is part of that new experimentation. We are going to do a book review at the end of the month for every episode, and which forces us to finish a book a month. We're trying to create a 30 minutes or less format that acts as verbal spark notes, quote unquote, that accelerates the learning process. So let us know in the comments and reviews on both of our platforms about the new format. Appreciate it if you could leave us a review and it really helps us the podcast grow and give us the feedback, which we are constantly trying to get better and better which episode. So for this month's book review episode, Ryan Holiday, he's the author of the book, Stillness is the Key, and he has written Ego is the Enemy and Obstacle is the Way, which are both on the New York Times bestseller list for consecutive weeks. Both of these books use ancient Stoic philosophy to make relatable arguments for modern society. And Ryan Holiday, he's known for popularizing Stoicism and also runs his books and newsletter, The Daily Stoic, which has hundreds and thousands of subscribers. Stillness is a key stood out to me for two reasons. Small chapters, it is written in extremely precise language and immediately and applicable action steps. And also all the examples he uses in the books are very relatable to both of us and hopefully many listeners out there. Holiday uses examples and stories across both ancient and modern philosophy, athletics, history, and literature to prove that stillness is the key to, well, just about everything. He describes it such as this. The one ability that distinguishes elite performers and world-class athletes from the ordinary people is their ability to be still when the world spins around you. Ryan Holiday opens the book with a story of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So in 1962, there were 13 days where the entire world was on the verge of a nuclear holocaust. Um, America and Russia were basically in a standoff with each other, um, had nuclear weapons pointed at each other, Russia pointing from Cuba towards America, America pointing back at Cuba over towards Russia. And this decision of how to handle this circumstance really fell into the lap of President John F. Kennedy. While the rest of the government, the rest of his advisors, and basically the entire country was set on reacting to Russian hostility, President John F. Kennedy was able to remain still. He was able to remain non-reactive by going into solitude, really thinking about the issues at hand and what the eventual impact would be if America were to retaliate in such a manner. So this story begins the book and Kennedy argues, with clear thinking, wisdom, and patience, and a keen eye for the root of a complex, provocative conflict, Kennedy has saved the world from a nuclear holocaust. So, whether you're trying to think clearly, make tough decisions, handle high-pressure situations, maintain strong relationships, 
or really just about anything you can think of, Stillness is the Key. This book, Stillness is the Key, is broken into three different sections, mind, spirit, and body, and there's 10 short chapters within each section. So each chapter is about four pages, which is one of the things that made this book one of my favorites. You can really pick it up every morning, read a quick four pages, and then ponder that example, that lesson, that commandment throughout your day. And Holiday argues that one cannot achieve stillness without the unicity of mind, body, and spirit. They all work together to balance each other and achieve stillness. So for this podcast, we've selected two of our favorite chapters from each section, and we will read a passage from each and try to synthesize our biggest takeaways from each of the chapters. So the first section is centered around the mind, and we will discuss our favorite passages and what they will mean to us. So our first favorite chapter from the mind section was limit your inputs. So I'm going to read a passage from this chapter that we thought really spoke to us. The important stuff will be important by the time you get to it. The unimportant will have made its insignificance obvious or simply disappeared. Then, with stillness rather than needless urgency or exhaustion, you will be able to sit down and give what deserves consideration your full attention. That's a great passage that really resonated with both myself and Aiden. And the reason why I picked that is because in the book, Ryan Holiday, he uses that passage and leads into one of the best examples I've read from a book. So he brings out about the idea of Roosevelt's box and or Napoleon's strategy. So it's basically the idea of focus on what matters because it's the idea that what is urgent is not always important. Some people know that as decision-making fatigue because when you try to exhaust your mental energy and your finite amount of decision-making that everyone is given with when they're born, you're going to exhaust that. You're going to hit and reach the threshold faster if you use that aimlessly. And the idea that he used for Napoleon's strategy is back in the days when Napoleon, he was dealing whether in the wartime or peacetime, he had a strategy of he never opened his mail until he reached about a week or 10 days. Because the idea is he as the commander in chief, he as the executive decision making in the whole country, he swamped with all these letters and all these mails that came to with highest urgency. But he discovered once you let those mails just sit in the mailbox for seven days, for up to 10 days, and then once he opens them, many of those quote unquote urgent and important letters in the mails dissolved naturally because he realized half the things that were noted as urgent either resolved themselves or were solved before even he had to came to this decision. So then he was able to conserve his energy and to truly allocate what he thinks is matter and allocate his finite amount of executive decision-making towards things that are really going to sway or change the outcome of the war or whatever things that he, he was dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. It was a really profound example that I'd never really heard of because rarely are you hearing about male strategies um, back in the historical, back in historical times. So one quote that I think really spoke to me here is a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. And that's from Herman Simon. So the idea there really, I think, bridges into common day culture, especially when we're faced with so many different news outlets, so many different applications, so much different social media, all telling us different things of, oh, I found this secret diet or, oh, I found the perfect news outlet that tells you only truth. Like there's so many different things out there that we really need to be more cognizant of where we're informing ourselves or how we're getting our news. 
And this is exactly the point that Holiday tries to make in here is he uses an example from the meditations book from Marcus Aurelius. And the idea is asking every moment, is this necessary? So no matter where you're consuming information from, or no matter what the decision that you're making is, it's, is this necessary? Is this a necessary article to read? Is this a necessary TV station to be consuming from or a necessary decision to be making? So it's knowing what to think about and what not to think about. That really spoke to me. You know, I think since reading this book, I've gone back and deleted or unsubscribed from several different news platforms, email platforms, just trying to really limit my inputs and make sure that good is coming in so that on the other side, good can come out. Absolutely. And you know, that this whole chapter, it's about limiting your input because of course, good inputs leads to good outputs. But it's also, it's the simple idea that don't let your ego take control. Don't be that one person in the room that is always up to date with everything. You don't have to know everything. Truly, truly be intentional and allocate your finite amount of decisions and your attention and your mental energy towards things that actually matter. And you have to decide what matters. So ask yourself the question at every moment, is this necessary? Is this truly necessary to the outcome and the output that I want to achieve? If not, let them go. I think the mention of ego that Ryan Holiday makes is a crucial part of this lesson, really setting aside your existing beliefs and limiting your inputs and inevitably getting the best inputs back. And this kind of bridges into the second chapter that we found really inspirational is seek wisdom. So by putting your own ideas aside, limiting your inputs, seeking good inputs, you'll inevitably find wisdom, find truth. So now we're going to share a passage from the Seek Wisdom chapter. Each school has its own take on wisdom, but the same themes appear in all of them. The need to ask questions, the need to study and reflect, the importance of intellectual humility, the power of experiences, most of all failure and mistakes, to open our eyes to truth and understanding. In this way, wisdom is a sense of the big picture the accumulation of experience and the ability to rise above the biases, the traps that catch lazier thinkers. So Ryan Holiday uses this passage to describe Socrates, or rather uses the Socrates story or example to bridge into this larger observation. So Socrates was an ancient Greek philosopher who was widely considered to be the most intelligent, yet the most intellectually humble man in all of Greece. And you may have heard of the Socratic method, which is his biggest contribution to current day. So the Socratic method revolves around constantly asking questions, a lot of what, a lot of why, how, when, really just trying to probe and remain curious about whatever issue that is being talked about. So the argument that Holiday makes in the book is that by utilizing the Socratic method, putting your ego aside and really just remaining a student to whatever you're learning about, you can inevitably encounter the universal truth or the universal wisdom that applies across religions, across philosophies, and really to anyone that exists in this world. Absolutely. And Holiday goes deeper into the idea that doesn't matter what type of class of school of thinking or different religion, different culture, different regions of the world, each school and each class of thinking comes with its own take on wisdom, but the same theme appears in all of them over and over again. It is the absolute need to ask questions, the need to study and reflect, the importance of intellectual humility, 
the power of experiences, most of all failures and mistakes, you know, to open our eyes to truth and understanding. And it's because when people stop asking questions, they're going to get soaked and, and entrenched in their own ego because they think they know it all, but then that's how you stay stagnant. And to break through that barrier is only through one universal truth. And the method that Socrates was known for is constantly asking questions. And that is the universal truth. You have to keep seeking wisdom by asking questions. And that reminds me of this great political polarity and chasm that we have in today's age is it's the greatest challenge we face because it's our inability to have a productive conversation with two sides of the parties who may hold profound political differences and views. You cannot argue when you're seeking true wisdom by asking questions. And seeking wisdom means you're looking for new insights from the other party. So whenever, if you want to have those productive conversations, speak less, ask more questions. Why does that person hold that, what you may consider as divine difference from your point of view? By asking questions, you're going to be able to find more common ground and discover and uncover more insights that you never thought about. So talk less, ask more questions, and ultimately, seek more wisdom. Thanks, Ben. And with that, that ends our interpretation of the mind section of Stillness is the Key. Holiday argues that mind is ultimately the first pillar that you need to build on in order to get to the remaining pillars. So from there, we're going to move into the second section of the book being spirit. And the chapter that we picked in the spirit is enter relationships. So here's a passage from the enter relationships chapter. Stillness is best not sought alone, and like success, it is best when shared. We all need someone who understands us better than we understand ourselves, if only to keep us honest. By ourselves, we are a fraction of what we can be. By ourselves, something is missing, and worse, we feel that in our bones, which is why stillness requires other people. Indeed, it is for other people. Yeah, we just want to make a quick distinguishment about this chapter. And I know the sound of the title, Enter Relationships, may sound irrelevant and unrelatable to many who are not in a relationship. But the whole idea of this chapter is way surpass the idea of relationship. It is the idea of surrender. Because when you're by yourself, everything is around me, me, me. Everything is self-centered. You don't have to compromise your schedule. You don't have to compromise your time. You don't have to compromise your energy for your significant other because you're single. However, by entering relationships, it creates something more profound that is beyond the identification of you. It's about us and we, and it's about surrounding what you want all the time, surrounding what I want all the time, but rather share it and create that co-created experience with your significant other. And that's what this chapter is about. And especially for me, this chapter really resonated a bell because I was pretty recent into a relationship and I've been dating my wonderful girlfriend, Becky, shout out to you. I know you're listening that I learned a lot from her and I learned that relationship truly makes me want to better myself. And that's what a healthy relationship is because when I'm by myself, I can do what I want, when I want and what I want to do at all times. And I'm not really compromising because I don't have to, but relationship creates that healthy and positive incentive for me to want to share more time with someone, have that commitment with someone, have that emotional commitment with someone else and by having that companionship it's about surrounding my own identity and giving into the identity of us and of what we have together thanks ben that's really well said and i too have recently entered a relationship that 
I'm exceptionally happy with and I think really echoes a lot of the things that you've said. Uh, I've learned a lot of those same lessons and am continuing, but because it's only been approximately over a month, uh, I don't want to speak to that as much, especially because you covered so much of it. And I'd like to move past, I guess, romantic relationships into the argument that he makes about relationships as a whole, because as much as romantic relationships are certainly about surrender and looking for the other person's needs, but that's really in any relationship you're taking, uh, whether that's with a friend, a boss, a coworker, um, someone you're trying to build something with, it's really setting your own ego aside and looking for what they may want, what they may need. And we can ultimately learn so much about ourselves just by looking at what the other person may be. So this is kind of a big idea, but I want to try and briefly touch on it and then encourage people to reflect on it in their own experiences. But my Aunt Joanne, shout out if you're listening, introduced me to the idea at Thanksgiving of relationships as a mirror. So basically using your relationship as a mirror to see yourself. Once you get to know a specific person, you can assume their personality, their reactions constant, and you can really use how they're reacting as a mirror to how you're treating them. That has completely blown the way I view myself in the world uh, off its hinges, to be honest. You can really acknowledge how you're showing up based on the reactions from other people. And I think that is a, a great reminder that will benefit a lot of people and really captures the essence of what Holiday is talking about in this chapter. To conclude, he mentions the great philosopher Freud. Love, Freud said, is the great educator. We learn when we give it. We learn when we get it. We get closer to stillness through it. So the second section that we chose from the spirit section is accept a higher power. Holiday writes, we have so little control over the world around us. So many inexplicable events created this world that it works out to almost exactly the same way as if there were a god. The point of this belief is in some ways to override the mind, to quiet it down by putting it in true perspective. The common language for accepting a higher power is about letting him, her, or it into your heart. That's it. This is about rejecting the tyranny of her intellect, the immediate observational experiences, and accepting something bigger, something beyond ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this chapter of accepting high power goes so well with entry relationships because both chapters, and especially this chapter, it's also about surrender. It's not about being religious. It's not about believing in God or a unity or higher being or universe. It's none of that. It's about having faith that there's something greater than you are because if, if everything's about who you are, who I am, me, 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 that's an ego. And he also relates the example of in alcohol anonymous meetings. Step one is, of course, acceptance is the first step to recovery. And step two that I didn't know about that he mentioned is about accepting high power. That is the exact words for step two. And he talks about in the book that many intellectual people or atheists or agnostic, whatever beliefs are, who are in those meetings, it's the most difficult step to accept for those people because those people always argue that, oh, what, look at the science, look at the evolution, look at all these proofs that there is no God. But in AA meetings and holiday, they both argue that step two of accepting high power isn't really about God. It's about surrender. It's about faith. Just letting it go, it relieves stress because when you think everything's on you, that's a lot of chip on your shoulder and a lot of pressure. And by accepting and letting go of you as the one and only God 
and accepting someone else or something higher, it really relieves the pressure and stress from you. And I do also want to highlight and emphasize a very important fact that Ryan Holiday, he's not a believer. He considers himself as an atheist or as sometimes agnostic. So he doesn't believe in God himself. However, he underscores and he understands the true importance of not believing in yourself only, but in something higher. Because if you look at nihilism, that's what nihilism is, right? Because being nihilistic is such a fragile strategy because the nihilists, they focus and they're forced to wrestle with immense complexity and difficulty and this overwhelming amount of pressure from life and death. And that is such a comically unfair mismatch according to Holiday because how can you compare the finite energy and the finite, finite life force that you have compared to this cosmic importance of life? And so we think, and our holiday argues that nihilism resulted from trying to be the center of everything, is trying to control everything, is trying to always be in control. But the truth is, we have no power and control over life. So this chapter is truly, really about not being a, a believer, not being a Christian, not being Buddhist, whatever that may be, but rather don't believe in yourself only and accept there's something higher than you are and that's going to make your life easier. Yeah, excellent point, Ben. I'm really glad you brought up the fact that Holiday is an agnostic or atheist, which I was surprised about to hear in a recent interview I listened to, um, because you know he's not trying to teach us what to believe or preach towards us about what his God is, but rather just to believe in that higher power to set ourselves, our own egos aside, and just believe in whatever you want to believe. So I want to leave leave you guys with this one quote that he ended the chapter with that really speaks to the essence of it. So it's from a philosopher, Nassim Talib. It's not that we need to believe that God is great, only that God is greater than ourselves. So from there, we're going to bridge into the third and final section of Stonus is the Key, the body. So the chapter we selected from this chapter is Seek Solitude. Holiday writes, Sometimes you have to disconnect in order to better connect with yourselves and the people you serve and love. If I was to sum up the single biggest problem of senior leadership in the information age, four-star Marine Corps General and former Secretary of Defense James Mathis has said, it's a lack of reflection. Solitude allows you to reflect while others are reacting. We need solitude to refocus on perspective decision-making rather than reacting to problems as they arise. Yeah, and I think, of course, the former Secretary of Defense, James Maddock, he definitely highlighted the importance of solitude. But I think this ties all the way back to what we talked about in our introduction for this episode is what the President JFK did, right? When the whole world is spinning around you, when seemingly the pressure to prevent World War III is single-handedly on your shoulder, there is so much an immense amount of pressure to be held. However, what JFK did is instead of being caught in the tornado of news, the tornado of chaos, he said, you know what? I'm going to detach and disengage from myself from all this chaos and seek order through solitude. So he would go on morning swims. He would lock himself in the library and he would just read as if nothing's going on, as if the world is not burning down under him because he realized and he recognized the importance of seeking solitude is detach from yourself from the world and find your inner peace. And through that, you achieve the ability of stillness, which is what this whole book is about. And he was able to generate 
non-reactive yet appropriate and effective strategy after the solitude has sought. Absolutely, Ben. And it's really profound as to how many different examples Holiday gives in this chapter. Uh, he mentions Leonardo when he was working on the Last Supper painting. He would arrive early in the morning and basically sit by himself preparing for the day, imagining the work that he wanted to create. Um, and in a more modern era, Bill Gates, Holiday mentions that twice a year he takes what he calls a think week, where basically he goes to a cabin for the entire week and really wrestles with the big problems, the big ideas that he or his company may be dealing with. Regardless of time, regardless of circumstance, really it's the solitude that allows you to get clear on what is the proper course of action. I think that there's a reason why so many breakthroughs occur while you're out on a walk, out on a hike, or even in the shower. I know a modern day author, Simon Sinek, mentions that he would keep a marker in his shower. So whenever he was showering or brushing his teeth and would have an idea, he would write it up on the tile wall of his bathroom, really just to remember all of the things that he was having in that solitude of his bathroom. So whatever approach that you want to take to solitude, sometimes it's meditation, sometimes it's journaling, sometimes it's going for a walk. It's really that solitude that lets you get clear on what you're trying to achieve and bring understanding and gratitude back into the world that we live in through stillness. So the final section that we'll be reading from the body chapter is be a human being. Holiday writes, good decisions are not made by those who are running on empty. What kind of interior life can you have? What kind of thinking can you do when you're utterly and completely overworked? It's a vicious cycle. We end up having to work more to fix the errors that we've made when we would have been better off resting, having consciously said no instead of reflexively saying yes. We end up pushing good people away and losing relationships because we're wound so tight and have so little patience. It's a human being, not a human doing, for a reason. Moderation. Being present. Knowing your limits. This is the key. The body that each of us has was a gift. Don't work it to death. Don't burn it out. Protect the gift. Yeah, what a great passage that was, Aiden, because when I heard that phrase of it is a human being, not a human doing for a reason, that absolutely blew my mind. Because I think it's Ryan Holiday's ability to find refinery through such a simple sentence and through simplicity that really struck me on a deeper level. But yeah, to riff off that, I think he gives out many, many examples in this chapter, but he highlights the idea that he says, remember, the main cause of injury for elite athletes, whether it's NBA, NFL, MLB, it's not really from tripping and falling. Sure, those happen, but those usually are not career-ending injuries. And it's not collisions either. It's overuse. In the book, he talks about elite athletes don't injure themselves over those minor causes. The career-ending injuries often result from overtraining, such as overpitching for pitchers in the MLB and exhausting their finite physiology and their energy. Because obviously, unless you're on serious drugs like steroids, everyone has a threshold about how much they can perform. And on that note, he also gives another very powerful yet unfortunate example of the Nazis back in the days. The Nazis in the Auschwitz camps, he used the, they used the line and the lie of work will set you free. Uh, obviously, as external motivation to literally work those prisoners and those people who are in those camps to work them to death. But the reality is the work never sets you free. It literally kills you. 
And if you look at the Korean war culture or the Japanese war culture, in those two cultures respectively, there are terms and words in the vocabulary coined to describe people who work themselves to death. And in Japan, I know that there is a career of people who clean up after those dead bodies because they often discover them in the hotels or in companies who have no family members to claim their bodies for. And that's their job is to clean after those dead bodies who kill them from overworking. That is such a powerful thing. I really want people to take a few seconds, pause this and reflect upon because work never sets you free. Excellent point, Ben. And I think of all the chapters, all the sections, all the chapters, this one potentially spoke to me the most because being not doing being is ultimately where stillness lies when you're being you're not thinking when you're being you're not doing when you're absolutely settled in your true essence in your true being that's where stillness appears so we really want to encourage anyone and everyone to pick up a copy of this book uh, like we talked about at the beginning each chapter is four pages i'm don't care how busy you are it's really just a profound read that you can do in two to five minutes before you go to work every day we've discussed and shared a lot of the lessons and not even half of the impacts that this body of work has had on our lives since reading it so we hope you all find time to either pick up a book and read it for yourself or at the very least reflect on the following chapters that we've discussed today one from the mind section limit your inputs two seek wisdom from the spirit section enter relationships and accept a higher power from the body section seek solitude and most importantly be a human being the ultimate purpose of stillness is being present in the beautiful moments around you thank you thank you for listening to another episode of discover more We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.